Welcome everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, the host and founder of Restorative Justice on the Rise. It's a pleasure to have you visit our podcast. Please spread the word about our iTunes and Spotify streams and enjoy this conversation today, um, our most recent with Tim Chapman. This is coming from the mid-February 2024 podcast schedule, and it was an honor to have Tim with us. He had a lengthy career in the probation service in Northern Ireland, rising to a senior management position, and spent 10 years as a lecturer and course director of the Master's Program in Restorative Practices at the University of Ulster. He now teaches at the University of Sassari, Italy, as a visiting professor, and at the University of Strathclyde as a visiting professor. He offers training, research, and consultancy in restorative justice, and has conducted training in restorative justice theory and practices from foundation level to specialist training throughout the world. He's also published widely in effective probation practice, youth justice, and restorative justice. Currently, he is conducting research into victims' experience of restorative justice and has been a board member and also the chair of the European Forum for Restorative Justice. He continues to practice and is leading two major restorative justice programs addressing institutional sexual abuse. I'd also like to point out that the European Forum for Restorative Justice will be hosting an international conference this May, at the end of May, in Tallinn, Estonia. For more information about that conference, please go to euforumrj.org. That's the EFRJ International Conference in Tallinn, Estonia, at the end of May 2024. For more information about Restorative Justice on the Rise, please go to restorativejusticeontherise.org and also please check out our streams at Spotify and iTunes podcasts alike. Thank you very much, everyone, for being a very important part of this global community around restorative justice and peace building and the transformation of lives and systems. Enjoy this conversation with Tim Chapman. Um, I lived and worked through a period of extreme violent political conflict. And during that time, I was working as a probation officer. And I tended to choose to work in the most militant areas. Uh, I find them the most interesting. And so I guess one of the things when I think back on it, I probably wasn't conscious at the time, but I became very aware of how violence, whether it's from politically motivated armed groups or the state, um, abuse people's rights. Uh, I was very aware of the abuse of power through violence um, and uh, and uh, other means were affecting um, the most underserved communities particularly. Uh, as a probation officer, I was very aware that young people, particularly young men, were responding. And again, they had role models for violence. They 
they uh, were getting involved in, in crime uh, because that seemed to be the one of the op few options were open to them. And the community itself responded in a very punitive way. I mean, we in the areas that I worked with, young, young people who got themselves in, in conflict with the law and committed crimes were literally shot by armed groups as a punishment, you know, not killed generally, but shot through their limbs. It was known locally as kneecapping because they tended to look, uh, shoot them through their knees. And so I I did my very best to to work with these young people and, and adults as well uh, and to try and help them, um, you know, get back to a decent life where they weren't harming others. Um, and that at times made me unpopular in the community because I was seen as siding with the bad kids. Um, and then I discovered restorative justice and things seemed to fall into place because now I could work not only with perpetrators of harm, but victims of harm. And I could work in a way that I thought was consistent with a positive use of power and uh, consistent with human rights. So once I discovered that, it wasn't long before I left the probation service and started getting trained in restorative justice, started practicing it. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really how I got into this, this business uh, and this sort of movement. Um, so I just want to, again, acknowledge those of you that are coming in and thank you, Tim, for, um, for that sharing of, of what inspired you to come into this field. And I've really appreciated all the work that, that you've guided, um, specifically, and we're going to talk today about some very specific pockets, but could could you, if you'd be willing, talk a little bit about your leadership at the European Forum for Restorative Justice? For those of us that are coming in today from the United States and then, of course, listening on the podcast, um, so many of us are very interested in, in what's going on in the EU right now and, and mm -hmm. what, what you've seen. So tell us a little bit more, if you would, about the EFRJ and, and you know, yeah. you served as the president for many years, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. The chair, we called it the chair. Yes. Of the chair. Yes. Um, we, um, <laughs> yeah. At about the same time as I was discovering restorative justice, the European forum for restorative justice was being formed. It came out of a, an initiative and, and a sort of European international organization, all the European countries sign up to this. It's like a United Nations for Europe, the Council of Europe. And they asked a group of experts to advise them on a policy and a recommendation on mediation, victim offender mediation within criminal justice. And I wasn't involved uh, in that, but those that brought a group of experts from all over Europe to, to develop this policy for Europe. And they then decided, you know, we're together, we have a lot in common, let's set up this European Forum for Restorative Justice. So it was formed in the year 2000. In the meantime, I was working in Northern Ireland, developing um, the, the restorative justice program um, uh, that had come out of the peace process. By now, we had um, a semblance of peace in Northern Ireland. And it was getting well known in Europe um, as, a, as a good example of restorative justice. 
And I was asked then if I would stand for election to the board around 2014 and was elected to the board, um, served a couple of years trying to understand how the, the forum worked. And then in 2016, um, I was elected uh, for a, for a six-year term to be the chair of the board and, and resigned in 2022. Um, the European Forum is a, is a network organization. It's a membership organization. It has individual members and it has organizational members. Um, there's around five to 600 members altogether throughout Europe. Uh, probably just about every country in Europe has, has people. And of course, people outside Europe can join. There's, um, you know, people from North America, Latin America, Asia and Africa are also members. You don't have to be European. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed was that it it could activate its membership more. There was so much talent that particularly came out in our conferences, an amazing array of workshops and speakers. And so I felt we weren't fully activating our membership. So when I became chair, that was one of my missions to activate membership and to, I suppose, deepen and broaden the scope of restorative justice beyond just the, the criminal justice system. And, um, and over the six years, we made, you know, pretty good strides in that. Um, Tim, I, Tim may, I inter may I kindly interject? Mm -hmm, of course. You said, you said something so beautifully important about deepening um, restorative practices beyond the criminal justice system. Mm. Would you be willing to just say a, a quick little bit more about that for us? Mm. Yeah. What does that mean to um, you? Um, well, let me give you concrete examples um, of what the European Forum is doing. We, we have, as I say, it's a membership organization. We encourage members to be active. And we do that through working groups and committees and the board uh, and various uh, projects, research projects. So about 20% of the membership, I say, are active, you know, giving their time freely for the board. So to give you a quick rundown on the sort of work they're doing, we have working groups on gender-based violence. We have working groups on hate crime and polarization within society. Uh, working groups on institutional abuse, which I'll, I'll probably talk about a bit later. Um, uh, uh, what, what, what else have we got? We've got a training committee. We've got a publications committee, um, a quality, um, a values and, and standards committee in restorative justice. We have um, a committee for people working in education and schools using restorative practices. Uh, we have a restorative cities working group developing municipalities to become restorative. So that gives a flavor of spreading our wings a bit um, and also using research and training and sort of um, process design to get deeper into the richness and potential of, of restorative justice. Mm. Thank yeah. you so much. And and my observation is just, uh, you know, just starting to begin of uh, understanding what these working groups are all about that you just mentioned. Um, but I'm noticing that there's global participation. People can submit mm -hmm. 
interest in a working group? If you're a member yeah, of yeah. the EFRJ or we have, uh, we have Americans participate yeah. in working groups. So, so, so it's, it's quite wonderful and really mm. appreciate the depth of that work. Um, mm. And in, in edges, I believe of the field, really, it looks like you're really exploring the edges of the field in these working groups, which is very important. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, the edges, the margins, but mm -hmm. also staying true to the core principles and values of restorative justice. Mm -hmm. but I think one of the things, and I think it's a theme for this evening, is a lot of those working groups, when you think of gender-based violence, um, institutional abuse, is looking at power, uh, looking at the abuse of power. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the core things that's emerging from the the European scene, the the need to challenge abuse of power through restorative means and to empower those who are are being, you know, suffering injustice. I would love to go right into that <laughs> because that's such a, a a big piece of of what I'm guessing a lot of us have come together today live to hear from you about is how, how do we really go into, into that? And what does that look like? I mean, I think we all know and can imagine what you've seen in Northern Ireland and all over the world, probably with the work that mm -hmm. you've done. Um, so what does, what does this really mean? I mean, let's just go for it. Let's talk about mm -hmm. our, our topic. Um, yeah. Um, well, let, let me let me start firstly talk a little bit about the research I've done because I find if I came from a criminal justice background, and so my first sort of I suppose priority was to try and support people who had committed harmful acts to sort out whatever it was in their lives that was making them do that and, and to get a better life and become, you know stronger more responsible citizens and i and I, the the model we developed in northern ireland we called it the balanced model it was really taken from work that had been done in the states uh, balancing the interests and needs of victims and offenders in the community so i always thought i was balanced until i started some research into victims victims of serious crime who'd experienced restorative justice and realized that I had a lot of unconscious bias in favor of perpetrators of harm, just because I'd worked in a system that was uh, very focused on offenders rather than victims. And that taught me a lot. Um, it taught me about both the vulnerability of victims, but also their strength and courage. Um, it taught me that what was important about restorative justice is not what we do. And I think I spent a lot of time as a trainer talking about what we should do, what good practice was, etc. It made me reframe that into what restorative justice is about is what it enables ordinary people to do. And victims sort of taught me that because they the approach I took was a very narrative approach. I just asked them to tell me their story. I didn't have questions or theories to prove. And they showed me how that way before they knew what restorative justice was or met anybody who practiced it, 
they were trying to restore themselves. There's something within us that wants to restore ourselves when something bad has happened, or even when we've done something bad. And um, and so, and became a greater appreciation that the importance of their stories and their agency. It was a, it was humbling because when they got to talk about the restorative experience, I mean they were very positive about it, but they didn't go into a lot of detail. All the sort of stuff I teach. Um, the thing they said mainly was it was great to have a practitioner to do the heavy lifting. That's that was their expression. And I wasn't sure what that meant. I think it meant you need that practitioner to do the things you can't do, to organize it, facilitate it, get the room, get the time, get the get the protocol in place. Uh, but the actual important work, the actual the actual restorative practice was done by the participants of the process, not the practitioner. And so. Uh, so that was the first thing I took away in in relation to in in relation to that research that we need to be careful about our own power and not get too full of ourselves. That humility is probably one of the best qualities of a good practitioner, and and almost to make ourselves and our method invisible, so that they feel they are doing the work, they are achieving what matters to them. Mm. Um, that's such a powerful point. I thank you, mm. I, if you don't mind. Um, thank you for, for stating that um, as we move in this field, no matter where we are in the world, um, I'm, I'm observing for myself and for, for maybe many of us that, um, that we might tend to feel that it's all on us to drive it forward. And yet that contradicts the wisdom of the circle, uh, the wisdom of the individual and the true essence is if I'm hearing you correctly, that's what you're saying, that the mm -hmm. essence of restorative practice is really for us that are offering to help guide it is, is not unlike what um, our friend Dominic Barter would say. And that's that the, um, the facilitator ideally disappears. Mm -hmm. To yeah. some degree, there's a disappearance mm. uh, to some degree, although they're still there to help guide. Yeah, oh, but it's important. I mean, the facilitator is very important, yeah. but not not to get carried away that we're the hero of the story. Yes, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I, the the metaphor I use in my teaching is we're the scaffolders. We provide the scaffolding that creates the strong, safe platforms on which ordinary people can do risky and difficult work. Just like, you know, you're, you've you got to climb up a huge building to fix a crack in the wall or something. It's scary and it's difficult. So you need a, a safe platform in order to do that work. So the participants do the work, but we build the scaffolding around them so it's safe and um, they can get on with it. And, and I think what we're doing is releasing that, which I think is in all of us, that, as I said earlier, that impulse to restore ourselves if we get hurt and, um, and our own just intelligence and ability to enter into dialogue with others and discover solutions rather than always looking to the expert to say, what's wrong with me and 
what should I do? Can you give me a cure? So I just want to welcome everybody's voice into this conversation at this point. And um, if not already, hopefully you have that sense that even though we're, we're it's just um, my screen and Tim's in view, we really feel you here and welcome you here as a conversation community and would love to invite your questions in the chat. Um, and if you have a question right now about what we're diving into together, would love to welcome that right now. So um, if you do have a question, you could raise your hand and then I can um, help you open your mic if that's needed. And while we're in this space of um, allowing a pause for your thoughts to come forward, I'd just love to announce too that we'll be talking a bit about um, Tim's upcoming book in a little bit. You have a book um, that you're working on. And mm -hmm. um, for those of you who are curious, this podcast will be dropped on iTunes and Spotify, as well as as a video on our YouTube channel. That's Restorative Justice on the Rise YouTube channel. So we'll, we'll keep going, but if mm -hmm. uh, anyone would like to chime in at this point, let's just keep it kind of in a flow where you don't have to feel shy. Um, if you're here and you have a question, just chime in, please, by all means. Yes, I would so welcome that. Yes. So Tim, um, one of the things that maybe we could return to for a moment um, is around your experiences in Northern Ireland and the aspects of um, and we'll come back to you, Ellen, in just a moment. Thank you for that. I'm I'm watching the chat. Um, when when we're thinking about what we might call high level violence and mm -hmm. um, and even intergenerational inter uh, cross cross cultural traumas that mm -hmm. are long standing, um, what are you finding around how that relates to restorative justice? and um, root cause and core. Um, mm. Yeah, it's interesting you raise that. Um, I had a conversation with um, a practitioner working in, a, in an area where there had been a lot of violence during our political conflict. And she was asking me if I would do some training in more complex work uh, with her project. And I was saying, well, so how do you define complex work? And she gave me an interesting example. She says, we're now having people knock on our door who were, we call them ex-combatants. They have been called by other people as ex-terrorists or violent extremists. People who have, for political motivations, um, committed acts of violence to further their cause during our conflict. And they're coming now 20 years after peace was declared to say they're suffering from post-traumatic stress and they're dealing with deep feelings of guilt and shame about what they've done. And they're finding it's affecting their mental well-being. 
and they want to have some sort of restorative process that might give them some sense of peace. Uh, because although the war may be over, there's still something going on inside them. Uh, they're still fighting that war and, and fighting, I suppose, their conscience about what they did, the suffering they caused to others, and whether it was all worth it. We have made political progress in our country, but was it worth nearly 4,000 people being killed? Um for that, you know, a lot of people are dealing with the the aftermath of political violence and victims, of course, as well. who still have never have never received justice, have never um, received the truth of what happened to their loved ones when they were killed, what the motivation for killing them was. Um, so you can see how restorative processes can help in a sort of post-conflict situation to help people. You know, politicians can declare peace and sign peace treaties and change, you know, uh, reform, um, you know, structures of government. But that doesn't have a huge impact on the relationships on the, on the ground and, the, and the, the grief and the guilt and the shame and the anger that is left after. A political conflict and i think that's where we can do something really useful wherever you know wherever there has been terrible things happen sometimes we feel a bit powerless while it's happening you know when you look at ukraine you look at israel gaza it just seems so horrible and you know what can we do but i think we come in afterwards to repair the things that can't be repaired politically or even medically but it's about relational, it's about values, um, it's about trauma, and um, I think we have a, a major contribution in societies to do that. Thank you so much, Tim, and I'd love to come over to the chat where I'm seeing some questions here from our community today, and I know that um, Quite a few have come in, but I, I would like to give proper honor to Michael Nagler and the Meta Center for Nonviolence. Michael, if you would like to ask your question with, with your voice and video, please do so. Um, again, the Meta Center for Nonviolence, maybe the two of you are acquainted. It's wonderful to see you, Michael. It's so nice to see you, Molly. It's been quite a while. It has been too long. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I, I just wanted to ask you whether you have been working any with the concept of moral injury. I actually have two questions. That is the first. Uh, do you work with moral injury? And if you want to address that a little bit, I'll sh yeah. share my second one later. Yeah, thank you for that question, Michael. And it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I... Yes, is the answer to that. Um, I When I started off, I don't know if other people were like this, when I started off in restorative justice, I was very focused on method. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what's the correct process? What is it? Are we mediators? Are we, you know, con restorative conferences or circles? Um, as I've got more experience and listened to people, I'm, I'm more... I'm more interested in defining the processes that I practice and teach as um as value led. Mm -hmm. 
based on pr certain principles and you listen to the participants when they come to you and work out what is the best way that we can together design a process that will resolve it. And I connect that with moral injury because quite often one of the questions or one of the things I'm searching for when I first meet a victim or a perpetrator is not just what happened and the impact of what happened, but what really matters to you. And usually that comes down to some violation of a sort of sacred value that they hold, mm -hmm. like dignity, mm -hmm. like solidarity. You know, do we, you know, what do we owe our fellow citizens? And has that been breached by this act? Um, justice, the fact that I've suffered an injustice, truth. These... So if if that, if I'm understanding you right, I think those are how people experience moral injury. They feel that something they believe in, a moral or value or an ethic, has been trodden upon without any respect and sensitivity. And that needs to be repaired. Mm. That They need that restored. They need a process which recognizes, acknowledges that their dignity has been trodden on and a process that helps them restore that dignity. And we as practitioners need to be exemplifying those values for them throughout the process. And, you know, and I don't know if you want me to talk at the moment, Molly, about the, the work I'm doing with the Catholic Church, but there's certainly moral injury in, a, in the practice I'm involved in a major project of institutional child sexual abuse mm. um, within the Catholic Church and the schools that they ran in Ireland. But I might come back to that because it brings, I think, moral injury and abuse of power into, into focus um, in a very concrete, um, concrete way. But I don't know if that answers your question, Michael, is that? It certainly does, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah. You had another one I, you want I to do. Yeah. Thank you for remembering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's been my uh, observation since the original uh, truth and reconciliation process in South Africa that a lot of restorative work omits a critical component, which is to enable the perpetrators in particular, not just to confess, but to do something. Mm -hmm. Classic example here in the U.S. would be some uh, some white people burnt down a black church some years ago, and they were uh, uh, ordered by the judge. His, his, you know, the sentence passed on them was to rebuild that church, and mm -hmm. that struck me as a, like a necessary component to actually get in and do some restoration, and not just. Uh, uh, just the change of heart that you think you have gone through. So I'd yeah. love to hear your comment on that. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there is there's a danger of restorative justice being diluted mm -hmm. um, and the justice part of it taken out. <laughs> I'm not, not going to argue for punishment or, you know, but there's no doubt, I mean, you know, in my research in victims, I've yet to meet a victim of serious crime who argued that the guy shouldn't have gone to prison. But 
what they say is that doesn't bring me closure. Right. Um, and it's again, it's the moral injury hasn't been addressed. Their voice hasn't been heard. Um, and and some restorative processes go the other way. They're they're about sort of, you know, empathy, all good things, empathy, apology, um, forgiveness. But I quite like a, like a victim to say, you're saying you're sorry. I want to sh you to show me it. Not just words. Words are easy. I want those words to have the power to translate into action. Mm -hmm. And that could be, I need some compensation or material reparation here, or I need to see you do something that proves to me you've learned something from this process and mm -hmm. you're going to change your life. Um, so I, I'm a great believer. I mean, our, our system in Northern Ireland was quite radical in that every young person under the age of 18 who admits to a criminal offence will be offered restorative justice. Mm -hmm. It's not the judge decides or the prosecutor decides or the social worker decides. They, they will be offered and it'll happen if they say, yes, I'll do that. And nine times out of 10, they say yes. And we've had tens of thousands of conferences. We're a small country of 1.8 million. I, I estimate about one person in 20 in Northern Ireland has been at a restorative conference. It's just normal. We've been mm. at it for over 20 years. Mm. And so it's just, it, it, at first there was lots of resistance. This is soft. This is, but I think we made it quite tough. And I don't mean tough in a punitive sense. I just think demanding of the perpetrator. Yeah. It's tough for the victim, too, to walk into the room and say what she or he wants to say. Um, so I think, yes, action speaks louder than words. I think what we sometimes say, it's the meeting that does everything. I believe it's what happens after the meeting that creates the outcome. The meeting is the springboard. It's the opportunity to come up with an agreement. What do we do to clear up this mess? Mm -hmm. And what particularly does the perpetrator owe? What obligation does he owe? And that's, I think, really good for the perpetrator because it seems to me that if you commit a harmful act, there's two problems. One, you've got to answer for it. You've got to be accountable. But two, in our society, and I suspect America's not that different, Offenders find it very difficult to shake the, the reputation, the stigma, the label. So I think they have to show, I'm going to demonstrate mm -hmm. that I want to do the right thing mm -hmm. and I want to be a good citizen. So I think, you know, that, that example you gave of, you know, right, rebuild that church mm -hmm. is, is a good example of, of reparation mm -hmm. uh, and restoration. Well, thank you so much, Tim. That enlarges my understanding uh, of the issue. Actually, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Mm. And of course, I'm glad that you agree. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for being willing to come into the visual room here with us today and for being here and for all that, that you do with the Meta Center for Nonviolence, which is quite a global force of its own. Um, of commitment to nonviolence in true ways. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, really. Oh. Yeah.
Well, Molly, from you, that is very confirming indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I did put the website for the Meta Center for Nonviolence in the chat for those of you that might be interested in uh, learning more. And I'd love to, to just shift gears for a moment um, and come back to more questions from our lovely community here. Um, but I'd like to make an announcement that kind of ties into our conversation today. And that's that um, there is a conference coming up in Tallinn, Estonia, that the European Forum for Restorative Justice is hosting from the 29th of May until the 31st, including a pre-workshop pre, um, on the 28th of May. Again, that's in Tallinn, Estonia. And the theme is called um, is, is focusing on just times, restorative justice responses in dark times. And uh, what a lovely convening and opportunity to take a, a, a week to delve into these uh, conversations very deeply. And as Tim described earlier, incredible breakouts, incredible opportunities to learn from people all over the world uh, along this theme. So um, thank you, Tim, for being involved in that and for making it known how welcome and included people are from all over the world. Um, I've, I've had the experience and honor of being at an event or two and have really, really felt that way um, coming from the States and have learned a lot. So thank you. Um, the registration can be um, found at euforumrj.org. For those of you that may not be aware of the EFRJ's website, that's euforumrj.org. And registration is now open. Um, so let's come back. Um, Nicodemus, I wanted to come to you, if I may, and invite you if you'd like to ask your question live, whether it's on camera or off. Or I can certainly have... Um, Yes, great. There he is. Great to see you, Nicodemus. Welcome. Great to see you too. Hi, Tim. Nice to meet you. Thanks for this powerful conversation. I'm honored to be able to witness and experience it. Um, Tim, something that you said early on in your conversation when you were talking about some of your own personal work that you were doing around unconscious bias really struck me. And I hear I hear many of my colleagues talk about doing that work of unconscious bias. And I'm wondering if, if you would be willing, if you wouldn't mind sharing a few of the insights or takeaways on some of that work that you think might be beneficial to others that might be doing that work along the way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can remember some examples to make it real. Um, it, it, it started to come to me when I had really deep listening with victims. And by that, I, I would mean I would contact a victim. They usually had experienced serious harm. And all I would say is, please tell me what you want me to know about what happened. And some would talk for 40 minutes. Some would talk for nearly two hours. And I said nothing, took notes, recorded it. It was quite often done on Zoom. And then in the end, I would say, you've made some interesting points. Could I just ask you a bit more about that? Now, some of the things that came out of that that confounded me, well, let me let me start with a sort of golden rule that I had. Um, when working with a victim of serious crime, 
really avoid anything that might re-traumatize, okay? So on several occasions, we've talked at the end of their story about the trauma, and they'd experienced really bad trauma, all the symptoms you would expect. And I said, you know, you, you, were, you, were, you were sort of so persistent in trying to find a way of having a conversation with your perpetrator. Surely that was re-traumatizing you because not only were they still suffering from the trauma of the crime, but they were being re-traumatized by people's reactions to them when they sought help, you know, uh, when they were pushed back by the police or other organizations, the victims' organizations, the people they went to to say, I need help and I want to talk to this guy who did this to me. They would be treated with a sort of, paternalistic sympathy. Oh, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. But you're not listening to me. I need to do this. And I'm just sort of thinking, if I had been behind that desk when they came in, maybe I would have said that, you know, I think this would be re-traumatizing. You're too vulnerable. And when I actually had an honest conversation, I said, you know, I would have said, if you go along this path, you're going to get re-traumatized. And you know, victims on several occasions said, yes, and I was. But you know what? It was worth it. And what I had sort of focused, I suppose, in my view of victims was on their vulnerability, their weakness, their need for protection, their need for safety, which is all true. But I hadn't focused on their strengths. I hadn't seen them as whole people, if you know what I mean. You know, I just focused on one part of them. And what I do now is when I'm working with a victim or a perpetrator, and it applies to both parties, I, I make very little distinction, to tell you the truth. They're human beings. Um, when I listen to the story, I use a process which helps me understand what really matters to this person. And if I know what really matters to them, then I can offer them something that will support them to get what really matters, to get it addressed. And, and time and again, victims have said, yes, that is what really matters. And I don't care if I feel the pain because it matters so much to me to free myself from this question or this need to find out the truth or this need to face the perpetrator who raped me and said, to tell them you did not destroy me. I feel no shame. You should feel shame. I, I underestimated courage, strength, even and compassion within victims because I had them in a sort of stereotypical view of victimhood. Um, and I suppose I didn't think I needed to design the the process to accommodate them. I think unconsciously I had a process which was about rehabilitating the perpetrator, restoring the perpetrator. Um, I wouldn't have admitted that until I heard it from the victim, you know. Um, the whole lot of things that they told me in my research really confined to basic things, you know, like there's a famous case where the facilitator came to tell the victim the meeting was set up. It was going to happen within a week or two. 
said, I have to tell you this. I've just had a conversation with the perpetrator. This is the man who raped you. And he's told me he's not sorry. He doesn't regret it. Don't expect an apology. Now, he will listen to your story. He will answer your questions truthfully. But he's not going to apologize. Now, that confounded me. I think in the past I would have said, well, the game's off. Uh, this is going to stop. The victim, then I said to the victim, well, so what did you do? She said, I've been preparing for this meeting for months and it never struck me that one of my objectives of this meeting was to get an apology. It didn't matter to her. Now, for other victims, it could have been the thing that mattered. But for her, it didn't matter. I want to show him that he hasn't destroyed me, that I have power and agency. And she further explained, if I had said to him, no, in that case, if you're not going to apologize to me, I'm not going to meet you. She said to me, she looked at me in the face and said, who has the power? He's still calling the shots. Just like when he raped me in a field, when he had total control over me, I will never let him have control over me. So though that really opened up my eyes to the dynamics of power, um, imbalances of power, and, and the, the victims, the importance to a victim to regain power, regain agency over their lives, whether it's over the perpetrator or over the trauma that they're suffering, which often takes away agency and drives their lives rather than their own choices. I don't know if that answers your question. That was just what first came to mind. About I had a lot of assumptions that were challenged when I actually listened to people without any filters, just listened, not trying to tick a box or, or do an assessment or prove a theory. Just listen to another human being. And then you suddenly think, oh, my goodness, I have been generalizing so much. That was, yes, definitely answered and responded to the questions. And I appreciate you sharing the specific examples and and being honest about the assumptions that we can sometimes make. And it sounds like by recognizing recognizing others' power through the listening, that you are also able to recognize the power that you were giving them in the same sense, which is like a really beautiful way of... Yeah of being and and being in space with people so thank you for I, allowing me to jump in yeah if i can just just say one thing I, I resist that notion of we're giving people power i think we're just releasing the power that people have you know that's the heavy lifting if you like we're going to create a context and an opportunity where you can be powerful when before you were you were, you were overpowered by somebody else so I don't think I have power to give, but I have opportunities to create where they can feel full light. I appreciate that reframing. Yeah, thank you. I talked to a young girl again who'd been raped, and she said she couldn't believe the power she had in the meeting because she, you know, the ground rule was, and I'm sure you'd be aware that, you know, you don't interrupt people. You wait till they finish before they, before you speak. And you listen. And she found power just coming back to her because she was able to face the rapist and say, 
what he'd done to her, the impact, and what was wrong with what he'd done. And he couldn't say anything. Because actually, this was a rape between people who knew each other. And he'd already always dominated her. She could never speak without him slapping her down. And so this restorative, you know, meeting opportunity allowed her to speak for nearly an hour and he couldn't say anything. And she said, that felt amazing. And then he had his opportunity to speak. Just when I hear those stories, I just think of the amazing courage um, that it must require of the individual and the person to face that. And in some ways it provides a space to let us know that, that we can be courageous too. I think so. I think we have it in us. I think what the practitioner does is, and I think I put a lot of emphasis into preparation for meetings and making sure the meeting's safe, but it's trying to draw out that courage that we all have, but often, you know, we're afraid of, or we're discouraged rather than encouraged. Um, so it's, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful practice. I, I, I love it because you see the humanity in everyone, even the people who have done horrible things, their ability to show compassion. Um, and courage and you know and just curiosity about other people not making judgments asking questions and wondering what what makes them different or or the same as us thanks thanks so much for having me uh, letting me hop in here molly and thanks for holding the space it's kind of nice meeting, meeting you all i'll uh, drop off and love someone else to right. join the conversation but thanks so much for engaging i appreciate it a pleasure to meet you. It's wonderful to see you, Nicodemus. Thank you so much for that. And um, just an, a quick note, um, Tim, I believe you had given us permission to have you for a little bit over the typical hour podcast conversation today. Um, is that still standing as a, yeah. a gift to us to have yeah, you for? Absolutely. Okay, lovely. I'm, I'm so, so I just want to give people clarity that if they would like to stay with us for um, I think we agreed on uh, until the next half hour. Is that correct? So that we, we're going for another maybe 15 to 30 minutes, depending on if we cover the questions that are in the chat and everything. Would that work for you? Mm -hmm. don't wanna, I don't want to keep you too long, but we, we have a lot of great questions. And um, we also had um, thought about diving a little bit more specifically into um, your discoveries around the Catholic church and, you know, the, mm -hmm. the pieces of, uh, around trauma. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit too about the, the domestic violence um, restorative justice training you just conducted. So, um, but on that note, there's, there is a question up here from John that might kind of, take us into a deeper direction around the church and um, what you might like to talk with us about. Um, mm. So John, if, if you would be willing and certainly not a requirement uh, to join us with by voice or video or both to ask your question. Oops, wait a minute. 
sorry. Uh, I had my stuff turned off. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. Welcome. Okay. Well, first of all, um, uh, I'm, I'm Native American joining you from um, New Mexico here in the United States. Uh, in my mother's language, we greet someone by saying Gwatsi. In my father's language, we greet, greet another by saying Ashui. Um, uh, and certainly for the many indigenous peoples, especially of the Southwest, we have always had uh, the historical um, record of the encroachment of um, invaders and colonists, but they were led primarily and justified through the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, that was really the purpose of uh, the colonization of the Americas, was certainly um, the expansion of the kingdom of Castile and Arag um, Aragon, but eventually then certainly to uh, bring into the Catholic fold the indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. But to do that, uh, you have to accept them as human beings mm -hmm. because you don't, at the time, uh, the Catholic Church wasn't indoctrinating Jews, uh, Muslims, gypsies, gays, lesbians, uh, Saracens, anybody that was not seen worthy of the Catholic faith was being persecuted because that was at the time of the Spanish Inquisition. But to then work toward Christianizing them, you have to accept them as human beings. So my question, or would like to perhaps get your perspective of, is when we think about crimes against humanity, um, you talked about rape, you talked about terrorism, and all of these things that human beings do to one another, but when it's justified and or institutionalized by a religion, by a dogma, to say those guys over there don't believe less like we do, but I can still be justified in doing what I can, what I do to another group simply because my belief systems, my existential constructs justify me to do that because I'm doing the work of my, my belief system. So I would just like to see, uh, perhaps maybe hear from you what your perspective is. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you, John, for a, thank you, an important and, and complex question. Uh, that I can really not do justice to in a short time, but I'll try just to answer honestly. I suppose as I was listening to you, I was thinking about a lot of things. Um, my childhood was spent in Nigeria. My father was a colonialist. At that time, uh, I had a very happy childhood in Nigeria. Um, and Nigeria was part of the British Empire. And I became, you know, I still have a strong affection for Nigeria. And when I meet Nigerians, I can see how imperialism has really damaged um, the indigenous culture and way of living together and governing their own land and has held them back in many ways. It hasn't helped them to develop, although they're resource rich and now have independence. Um, they're still a, you know, a very divided and troubled nation because of the legacy that the British left. I live in Ireland, which again was a British colony and we have been divided and left to fight it out amongst ourselves. Um, uh, again, by um, 
by colonization and it has a lasting a lasting effect it's a lasting traumatic effect on a nation and and on peoples and i mean all i can do is these sort of random sort of observations now i'm working on a major um major restorative project um within the catholic church in ireland which brings me back to your starting point and i recognize a lot of what you say um i'll just explain the the project briefly and then maybe draw out some of the points that may be relevant to your question um i was approached just over two years ago by a group of victims of child sexual abuse they were men of my age and looked like me, talked like me, and were well-educated, quite, quite privileged white men. But they'd been abused by Catholic priests when they were at school about 40 years ago. And they wanted me to see if I could facilitate restorative meetings between the victims and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Uh, because at the time, the church, it's, it's come out, you know, the Catholic Church used to be the most powerful institution in Ireland. Um, it's no longer. And, and in a way, it's a tragedy for the church because they, there were, there's been many instances of abuse committed within the church. And their initial approach was to cover it up. I think this has happened also in America. To cover it up and to tell the victims they were liars, religious people wouldn't do that, um, or to pay them off money and get them to sign non-disclosure agreements. Um, as, as always happens in a, a free society, these things come to the surface anyway. And the Catholic Church has lost a lot of its moral authority in Ireland, having been one of the most Catholic countries in the world. And so I've come into this um, when the Catholic Church are now more open to being accountable. But that doesn't mean they're totally open to it, because they have been, as you say, a very powerful institution for two, at least two millennia. And they are riven with, again, what I would call unconscious bias. Sometimes they don't know that they are imposing power on other people because they've just been doing it for so long. It's, it's sort of invisible to them. But when you're a victim, you see it very clearly, the, uh, what, what is going on. So although this project has gone reasonably well, um, it's interesting to me that the victims, the way I have... Or, or I prepare victims and they're deeply traumatized by this, as you can imagine, being, you know, raped by a mature man when you're eight years old or 10 years old. And I'm sorry if I'm triggering anybody. Um, please take care of yourself if I am. Um, that. Sorry, I'm just I'm just losing my train. They the victims. um will come after a lot of preparation with by me will be ready to tell their story and they will tell it and it is often quite painful and again i would go back to the point i made earlier 
they are willing to take on the re-traumatization in order to have their voice heard. They don't want to be protected. They want to take a stand in front of power. And to give the representatives of the church now their credit, they turn up for the meetings, they listen, they respond compassionately. They say something very important to victims, which they hadn't heard before. We believe you. You were an innocent child and our priest was the guilty person, 100%. So do not be ashamed. A lot of these men have carried shame for many, many years. Uh, and they will say, we will, if you would like, we will give you a written apology, personal, about what happened to you. And uh, we can pay for therapy for you. So that first part of the meeting is very compassionate. It's very healing. And I can see victims get a lot from that, a lot of comfort and peace from that. But then the victim wants to know what happened to the priest. Why did you not stop him from abusing children? Why did he not end up in prison like other sex offenders? Why, why did you, at that time, 40 years ago, feel it was more important to protect priests than to protect innocent children? then it gets uncomfortable because power has been challenged. And then they might go on to say, and what are you going to do to pay back? A bit like Michael's question, the very first question. You've said you're sorry, but does that mean anything in action? What are you going to change in the system? And what, what sort of payback do I get for the suffering I've experienced for the last 40 years? And they have terrible stuff, terrible loss, loss of innocence, loss of faith, um, because their, their religion is being violated by those who are meant to be protecting the religion. And again, what the church says is you'll, ne you'll need to get your lawyers to speak to our lawyers. And suddenly you're out of the restorative space. You're into the real world of power and sort of corporate responsibility or not. Um, and it's, it's only after we've done about 40 of these meetings, and it's only recently that the hierarchy are realizing this isn't good. We are re-traumatizing unnecessarily victims by putting them through litigation because they will have smart lawyers that will try and you know challenge the story in the restorative process they're believed but lawyers are not paid to believe everything they want evidence and they want to be able to challenge evidence and um, so it gets very messy so it is it gets about 70% of the way there, and then you hit, you hit power. And that's, I guess, one of the themes of tonight. This is more and more I'm seeing this, this use of power. Um, and I don't know if you speak this way, but a lot of restorative people in, in Britain and Ireland talk about the power of relationships. And I think that's true but there's also relationships of power. And that increasingly is what I'm working with, whether it's in gender, 
institutional power, uh, you know, patriarchal power, racist power, um, you know, you know, um, you know, heterosexist power, all sorts of forms of power. A lot of the time it seems invisible until you're the victim of it. And then it's very visible and very tangible. Um, and I think restorative justice practice needs to engage with this in a robust, not in a punitive, necessarily adversarial way, but in a way that helps those in power understand how they are abusing their power, but also helps the victims of injustice to undo their the, the injustices they're experiencing. And I think that, and as I get older and more experienced, that becomes clearer to me, uh, whether I'm right or wrong, I'm not sure, but that's that's where I'm at. It's a long rambling answer to you, John. I'm sure it doesn't hit all the points you made, but I appreciate your question. I think what you said was very legitimate. Um, and it's a problem throughout the world at the moment that we're dealing with post-colonialism. Um, and it's in the Middle East, it's in Asia, it's in Africa, it's in it's in Europe and it's in America. It's, uh, it's an unfortunate result of our past. Well, thank you. And it probably only exists because it's a human issue. Mm. Thank you again. Thank you, John. Thank you so much, John, for being willing to voice in. I really, really appreciate it as well. And hope that honors um, for everybody else that we still have questions from. Uh, just wanting to reiterate um, your choice as to whether you might like to voice it or and or on camera. Um, but Tim, with, with the time that we have together still, um, would you like to share a little bit more before we go back to, to, to questions from the community about um, your upcoming book? Or should we just stay on the, the I mean, this is such a powerful um, space that we're in right now. So I don't want to interrupt that either. Um, I can say right at the end, if you like, I'll just say, you know, this is the title that'll be coming out. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm oh, so, more interested in the in the questions, I must say. Let's do that. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to honor um, kind of along the thread that we're on already, but there are some questions up in the queue as well that haven't been addressed around um, holding space as a facilitator and, and so forth. So please don't worry, we're, we're, we're coming to you um, as best we can and haven't forgotten about you. Um, Lara, thank you. Would you like to voice in about your, um, your question about the voices of victims? Sure, thank you very much. Um, thank you. I, I uh, really appreciated all of the different um, comments that you've made with respect to uh, hearing deeply the voices of victims. And I'm curious about concepts like victim-centeredness and trauma-informed practice and your thoughts about them in relation to restorative justice practice. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of sounding as a bit of a hobby horse to me, but by now, 
in doing victim-centered work, I want them to know that every step of the process they're in control of. Um, you know, it's changed my vocabulary. It's changed my approach in many ways. You know, for instance, we would always say, you know, you must seek the consent of the victim to participate in a restorative process. I now would frame it as I ask the permission of the victim to be part of the flow of their life at the moment for a short while to see if I can help in any way. So I'm, I'm not looking for their consent. I'm looking for their permission to be of use, to be of service to them. So I try to honor their authority over their life, their reality, their narrative, as opposed to come in as the expert who can somehow shape their story um, into a better shape than they have it in. Uh, and that's what I've been taught by victims. And I think when I do that, they get much more engaged and much more open and will talk much more. You know, so many of these men who've been abused will have told me, you are the first person I've told, you know, this happened 40 years, I've carried it, you're the first person ever. It's such a privilege, but you have to create that sort of space for them. I'm sure you're all aware of that, but I bend over backwards to say, this is your story, your choice, your voice. I just am here to help you make those choices, um, use your voice, to address what really matters to you, because I don't know, I don't know you well enough to know what's important to you. You need, you need to educate me. Once I know what is important, then maybe I have a few ideas of how we could create the opportunity for you to say, ask, request, whatever it is you want from whoever you want to make those requests to. So I think I've learned to go to go at the right pace with people, not to push them. There's some people who are anxious to have a meeting and, you know, maybe I'll have just two preparatory meetings with them and they're ready to go. There's one who's just like that now. He's thought, put a lot of thought. He's had therapy. He doesn't need that much more work from me and he's ready to go. There's another guy I'm meeting tomorrow morning and I've been meeting him for over a year, preparing him. And he's nearly there. One of the indicators that he was nearly there two weeks ago was he got really angry and then apologized, said, I'm embarrassed. I said, don't be embarrassed. What happened to you was unjust. Anger is an appropriate response. So we're getting there that you're now allowing yourself to be angry about it before shame was the prevailing emotion and fear and anxiety. So it's pace, it's choice, it's taking great care that you're seeking permission at every stage of the way, taking great care to be able to feed back what you're hearing from somebody. That's something I learned from Dominic Barter. Let me see if I understand you. You've just told me this, this, is that. And to do it in such a way that they can contradict you, you say, no, you haven't got it right, or you've missed this bit out. So I am, you know, really on the same page. I'm not trying to give an interpretation or an assessment or tell them what's wrong with them or give them a theory. 
I'm I'm honoring their narrative, their life. That is, um, I need to be, I need to show a reverence for that. In the past, I can't say I was, I, I think I had a certain professional arrogance that I knew better than ordinary people. Now I really work on my humility, which doesn't necessarily come easy to me. Um, so those are some of the things in victim center. And then when it comes close to having a meeting, I now call it co-designing. I have a, a model that I call the seven P's. What are the seven things that begin with P that should be at a meeting? And obviously there's people with purpose. There's a place. There's, um, I, I couldn't think of a, a word in English beginning with P that meant time. So I've got period. What period of time will it take? When will it be? Um, how will the process be designed? You know, who will speak first? Who will speak next? I don't, I used to have a structure for that. Now I let the participants decide what are the protocols? That's a word begin with B that I used to use for ground rules. So now a protocol. Um, what preparation and support do people need? And the final P is the practitioner. This was taught to me by a victim. Um, she'd been a victim of rape again. And wanted to meet the person who raped her and was being supported by somebody who said, I have the very practitioner, very good. They went to meet the practitioner and the woman at the end of it just, she decided she didn't want him to have, to be the practitioner, to be the facilitator. And she said to this woman who'd really helped her and had found this practitioner who her friend really valued, said, I can't, I don't feel safe with him. And the other woman said, that's okay, we'll find another one. And she, the victim, reported to me, that's when I felt I was being restored. I was being treated like an adult who could make choices. And I wouldn't have to, you know, explain my choice. And I often wonder well, what I would have said <laughs> that it happened. But now when I'm working, at a certain stage of the preparation, I would say, let's talk about me, Tim Chapman. How do you feel about me facilitating the meeting? And I give you complete permission to say, I prefer somebody else. Maybe I prefer a female or somebody closer to my culture. And that's okay. We'll find somebody. And uh, so it's every step of the way, particularly for victims, but I do the same for perpetrators respecting their choice it's your process it's your life it's your trauma it's the, your harm that you committed or have suffered i'm not here to take possession of that and mold it into a restorative package it's it's you you are the, the person at the center of this not me you are the hero of your own story not me so that, that i don't know if that gives you a glimpse into the sort of practices I would use and and, and teach others. Um, thank you for the question, Lara. Thank you, Lara. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Lara, do you feel complete with your question? And did you have anything further you'd like to make known or inquire about? If I could just sort of go one little step further, because uh, 
these are really, really um, excellent inputs about uh, sort of how to be victim centers. What what I have found, I guess, um, is that there's still a question about whether that's even appropriate, whether that's even a good way to approach restorative justice. Um, and so I'd be curious about if you were in a conversation with someone and you were trying to speak to sort of the needs of victims, what you might say to them about why this is important. Why this approach I was describing is important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a, a really good, challenging question. It's making me think. I, I mean, what I notice about about both the injustice that the victim has experienced and the trauma that has resulted from that injustice is a loss of power, a loss mm-hmm. of control. The the offense is often the imposition of somebody else's power on you for their needs without any respect for your needs, your emotions, your values, your rights. And that's what is so destructive of crime and harmful behavior. Um, so, and then the trauma comes along and starts to drive you into a sort of defensive reaction to the pain, the fears, and all the things that we know that trauma, you know, creates for us. And often those defense mechanisms become the problem themselves. You know, so many men I'm meeting now are, are using cocaine, alcohol, mm-hmm. various sex addiction in order to deal with their trauma. And that becomes the problem. That's driving their lives, this sort of compulsive behavior. Um, so for me, the, the reason I take this is I want you to feel you can restore your own power over your own life to regain control and, you know, and, you know, to, to follow some sort of path of recovery. You know, I quite like Judith Herman's approach. Um, so mm-hmm. I tend to work along that path with them of safety, you know, getting a coherent narrative that you can integrate within your life, that it gives meaning and some meaning to what happened, however horrible, uh, and reconnecting with community and with relationships. And finally, in our last, most latest book, Getting Justice. So I think that the two things are very connected. It's about people getting back control. And that's why, you know, know, as I say, no victim has ever complained about punishment or imprisonment, but it doesn't help them regain control over their lives. Uh, I, I've not, had, you know, as I say, I've never had a victim complain about a prison sentence, but I've never said, okay, I've never heard anyone say, that's my problem's over. He's locked up. I don't need to worry anymore. You know, they they still have a lot of work to do to get over the crime. And sometimes it does involve going to meet the person who did it. Thanks so much. Appreciate your insights. Thank you, Lara. Thank you, Lara. Thank you so much. So as we are moving towards a linear closure today, um, not wanting to take too much more of Tim's evening in Ireland, uh, just wanna offer to those of you that um, we may not get to with your questions, 
Um, Tim, if you'd be willing, I would love to invite people to email me and maybe mm -hmm. send you a list of questions that you can respond to after the fact, if you're willing. Um, so the email address is rjonrise at gmail.com. And even those of you listening after the fact to the recording or watching the YouTube video, if you would like to contact us um, to reach out to Tim somehow with questions, we'll make sure that that gets coordinated appropriately. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd, it'd be a pleasure to receive your questions. I've, I've, even the questions I've heard tonight, um, it's making me think, it's making me learn. I, I, mm. I love those questions. You know, they're really thoughtful, really, you know, quite deep questions you're throwing at me. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. So I really don't want to be remiss in the top of the queue who've been very patient. And thank you, Ellen and Carolina. Um, both of you ask somewhat related to um, the facilitator role. If we could return to that for a moment, Tim. Um, and Ellen and, and Carolina, um, given the uh, time frame that we're in right now, if you don't mind, I'll just go ahead and summarize your questions on your behalf. Do I have your permission to do that? If you could just give me a thumbs up or something. Um, so as far as um, Ellen's question, thank you. Thank you for that permission. Um, she's asking about um, training facilitators. So that's kind of the first part. And then Carolina is curious about what you might feel about some of the hurdles to successful restorative justice circles. Mm -hmm. well, and thank you training, both. Yeah, they're, they're again, big questions. I could get yes. a whole web training. Right. Maybe you could come back with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Feel free to ask me. Uh, I've enjoyed this. Um, maybe just pick out a few things that I focus on in training. Um, I really, I spend a lot of time in working with people to be truly present with other people. You know, really, really um, focused, not on how am I doing? What's my performance? What am I doing next? To really sort of almost lose your ego, yourself in the in the process of the meeting and to be really attuned to what's going on because you're not distracted or not thinking about other things. And that that is a skill that comes with experience and practice and, and hard work. But I find those sort of restorative meetings, circles, conferences, what, whatever you're, you're using, when it's like, it's a bit like tonight, um, when the time just flies past, you say, oh, is that that time already? It's because you've been lost in the process. You've lost, you've been part of the process. You've been part of the collective. And there is a sort of collective energy and intelligence and creativity going on that isn't sort of thought out or planned and there's space for spontaneity and space for the unanticipated, which I'm sure you've all experienced. Just something happens. Wow, well, I didn't see that coming, but that is amazing what you just said. And that just is the key to opening everything up. That's what I love about this process and, and love about people. If, if you can get it set up right, if the scaffolding's all in place, 
then um, you just don't know what might happen, but you need to be present to that possibility. Um, and and to a certain extent, it's a real willingness to leave your reality and enter into other people's realities. You know, people who are very different from you. Uh, and, you know, to to accept that they have a life and a world that is different from yours. And it's really important that you have some understanding of that and can help them negotiate their their world rather than your world, which may be very different. Um, that's a very general answer to sort of facilitation and 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 um, training. I think the hurt the hurdles, the obstacles to that is when you get too self-conscious and too keen to look good and you know, be wise and, um, you know, be the savior or the rescuer, those sort of things that our ego takes us into. I have it very much, you know, that inclination to fix things even before I know what needs to be fixed. Um, you know, that sort of rushing into things in an ego, with goodwill, with an eagerness, you know, because you want to help people, you want to put things right. But I just say it's maybe not our job to put things right. It's our job to help them to put things right. Um, you know, that's just a lot of it comes down to whether we can be part of, to use a sort of slightly ugly word, but I can't think of a better one, part of the ecosystem of the circle, as opposed to a collection of egos, if that makes any sense to you, that your ego sort of melts into the, into the group just temporarily you know not uh, just for that hour or two hours that you lose that sort of in the center of your world and enter into other people's worlds that's the best i can do right now that's really beautifully articulated thank you tim and um Thank you for the question. And I'm just wondering if, um, Ellen, does that feel complete for you? And then for Carolina's question about, um, let's see, I believe it was Carolina, bear with me. Yeah, if Tim, would you be willing, I think you may have already kind of folded in the idea of some of the challenges and prohibiting factors while I was watching um, for questions. So I may not have heard exactly, but is there anything that you didn't already speak to that you'd like to add around um, what, what is this idea of a successful restorative process? Mm. And how does that also maybe thread in um, the true um, seeing and acknowledgement of the beautiful statement that you made about relationships of power yeah i mean i in my preparation process i would look with each party and sometimes have a bit of shuttle between the parties uh, about the potential risks to an effective and safe process for them and then you know work with them on how we can design a process that reduces the risks and increases the, you know, the um, 
resources that are required for an effective process. So I suppose the main thing I'm trying to do is to try and anticipate as many of those obstacles and concerns and things that could throw us off before we meet. And I'm using partly my own experience, but mainly th their view of what the risks are and, and seeing them as mm. the expert, mm -hmm. uh, working with them to design a process um, that they are happy with and mm -hmm. that we can sort of sign off on. And um, so a lot of it, but, um, you know, things can happen. I'll, I'll tell you something that scuppered one of our um, meetings with the church recently what I knew is that this guy was a multimillionaire who was the victim. He had a beautiful house in Dublin where I met him. He had a house in Indonesia. He had a house in New York. He was obviously a wealthy man. He didn't tell me about his business or anything. But when he talked about what happened to him, it was obvious that he was a deeply troubled and traumatized man underneath that image of wealth and confidence and power. And he also confided in me that he was addicted to cocaine and he'd been in rehab three times in the last 10 years. So anyway, he came for the meeting. And of course, one of the protocols that we use is you can call time out if you're getting upset or exhausted or you need just a break. And he did, and he went out, and he came back. And then we went on for another one, and then he called it again. And he came back a little shaky, I thought. And, he, and then he had a third time. And then we realized he was snorting cocaine when he was out. And he was getting more and more volatile, the very opposite of what we would expect from a restorative process. And it... It just ended very badly. It was the one process that I would say we failed. We didn't predict, even though I knew he told me that he uh, he was he was dependent on cocaine. I never thought for one minute that he would. And I'd said, you know, you need to be clean when you're at this meeting. I never thought that he would use time out to go out. And that was naive of me. Uh, so that was a major obstacle to a good process. Interestingly, you know, I was talking to the the head of the church who had been there about a month later, and we were just reviewing cases. And I said, well, that was a bad one, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, it was, it was very hard to manage that one. But he said, you know, he sent me a letter. And I said, no, I didn't know that. So he sent me a letter apologizing. He said, as a result of that, he'd gone straight into rehab. He had money, so he, he said he went to a place in Mexico and um, that he was feeling a lot clearer. And he'd written a letter to this guy in the hierarchy of the church to say that he was in a position to forgive the church, which was quite startling. So I think it, it even though it would, did not go as expected and would not have been seen as a, as, a, as a successful process, something positive must have happened within him to uh, to sort of sort of brought him to his senses and also to he was badly abused to to offer forgiveness for that which is unusual so
It's just one thing mm. that definitely go wrong. But we try mm -hmm. and predict with the participants. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's particularly important in gender-based violence, which we haven't had enough time as we haven't, haven't had time to really cover. But that's particularly important for people who've been abused within a, a relationship or sexually abused as, you know, as, as mature adults. Uh, to to do a really good risk assessment, you know, and and know when it's just not appropriate to go in it. Well, if I had um, the ability to add time without it extending out and keeping you, Tim, and everyone else from the rest of their afternoon or evening, I would because this has been extraordinary, really. Um, truly extraordinary. And um, thank you so much for being willing to come across the ocean. Um, and there's others have who have as well today too. So wanting to thank them, all of us for, for taking time out to be in this space together. And just as kind of a closure of sorts, um, would you like to share anything about your research, its availability to people, um, and the upcoming book. And yeah, then I, I I'll mean, have a few last words for people about where to find this online. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've, I've, as an academic, I've written quite a lot. And you can find most of my stuff if you sort of Google me on two of the academic um, websites, Academia and ResearchGate. Uh, you'll find articles and um, references to my work there. Um, um, the book that um, I'm busily writing at the moment and hoping to get finished by April should be published, you know, by the end of the year. And it's on my research into victims and it's called um, Restorative Narratives, What You Learn If You Listen to Victims. And um, I'm hoping um, that it'll be it'll be ready to ready to read uh, before the end of the year, maybe a bit sooner than that. Um, so, um, thank you very much for your patience and your attentions with me. Thank you. And possibly we'll get to see you in Tallinn. Uh, I should for, be there. Okay. That would be lovely. So uh, just a warm invitation to everyone to consider coming to Europe in the latter part of May for the conference, uh, 12th International Conference of the European Forum for Restorative Justice called, um, themed, excuse me, Just Times, Restorative Justice Responses in Dark Times. Um, so you can find out more about the European Forum for Restorative Justice at euforumrj.org. And as Tim mentioned, of course, those academic um, spaces academia and research gate for all of his papers and research and for those who didn't get a chance to have their question answered again please email rj on rise at gmail.com excuse me rj on rise at gmail.com and look out for this to drop on our itunes collection which is uh, a depth of 13 years worth of restorative justice related dialogues. And we're only now to uh, tupping, excuse me, touching the tip of the iceberg. And today was uh, such a deep dive. So thank you again, Tim, for all that you are in this field and 
Really looking forward to staying connected with you. And thank you, everyone. You make this uh, the community that it is. See you next time. Oh, and last thing on that note, we will be talking with Dominic Barter in the next months, as well as we have a, another session coming up in two weeks with Jabali Stewart, who is a practitioner from Seattle um, here in the United States. So stay tuned, please. And thank you so much.